Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series in the book of Matthew called The Mysteries of Compassion. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 9, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Determining Greatness. an older German story. It's the story of Faust. It was written by Johann Wolfgang Goethe, and it was written in the 16th century. Faust is frustrated with life and with knowledge and with pleasure and with power. He wants a pleasure in life that was so great that he might say of that one pleasure, ah, still delay, thou art so fair. That is, he wants a pleasure that's so great that he doesn't ever get sick of it once he's found it. And so Faust contracts to sell his soul to the devil if such a pleasure can be found. Well, to make a long story very short, Faust is shown a valley that he, through his own skill, has transformed from a, from a swamp to a fertile valley. And so, for the pleasure of the pride in his own accomplishments, the pride of self, the delight in his own supposed greatness, Faust finally says, Ah, still delay thou art so fair. And with that, he sells his soul to the devil. Might I suggest that the pride of self is the ultimate aphrodisiac. It is either expressed in power over others or in some fashion pretending that we transcend our own finitude, like like the people of Babel. It is to say, I'm going to build a tower as as a monument to my own greatness, and my name will never be eclipsed from the earth. For this pleasure, many of the sons and daughters of Adam have willingly sold their souls to the devil. People do that all the time. It has been said, even in those books that people write to condemn the pride of others, the authors are delighted to inscribe their own names on such books. We seek to accomplish something where we will be remembered, that our names will be spoken of with reverence even after we're gone. And failing that, we attempt to drown out the pain of our own failure with alcohol and drugs or mindless pleasure. We've come to Matthew 18, which is the fourth of Jesus' discourses in the book of Matthew. And this one is all about compassion and grace, kindness expressed to those who don't deserve it. But interestingly enough, this chapter doesn't begin with a need to forgive our enemies, at least not at the outset. It seems to begin by discussing a very different subject matter altogether. Chapter 18 begins with a teaching about humility and the necessity of setting aside all thoughts of our own greatness. It begins by abandoning Faust's attempt to achieve greatness and rather to seek humility. Let's start to read. It's Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So we notice that our text begins with the words, At that time. There must be a close temporal connection between chapter 17 chapter 18. Jesus, it would seem, has come back to his hometown of Capernaum. It's a town which has served as his basis of operations during his entire ministry in Galilee. Jesus and the Twelve have been on a very interesting ministry trip. After his miraculous feeding of the 5,000, he spent some time away from Galilee, first in Tyre and Sidon, where he shows his disciples that the Gentile world was as hungry for the Jewish Messiah Then they were, and he was willing to be as gracious and compassionate to Gentiles as he's been to Jews. And then they've gone to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, where he repeated the miracle of the loaves and fishes with a Gentile crowd, whom he not only fed, but he also healed. 
Again, he's treating the Gentiles with the same compassion that he's shown for the Jews. From there, he had gone north and then west to the region of Caesarea Philippi, where Peter had confessed him to be the Christ. And and there also, Jesus had told his disciples that he and they had a ministry of breaking down the doors of Satan's kingdom, rescuing men and women from the evil one's grasp. But he also told them he was going to Jerusalem to die, and that resulted in quite a stir. And then after that, he took Peter, James, and John on a high mountain and, and showed them all his splendor. And then he comes back to Galilee and back to his hometown of Capernaum. And it's been an amazing trip. And at that time, in the aftermath of all of that, the disciples came to Jesus asking who was the greatest. And and you've got to wonder, I mean, what in the world would lead them to ask that? Interestingly enough, Mark in his gospel fills in some of the details. Mark says that they were coming to the town of Capernaum and, and Jesus asked his disciples what they had been discussing along the way. And at first, they didn't want to say because, you know, it was embarrassing. But Matthew faithfully recalls that they finally did ask Jesus who was the greatest. But again, why was that a matter of conversation? Let me suggest an answer. For one, it seems that Peter had been receiving prominence among the twelve. I mean, it was Peter who had actually walked on the water. And it was Peter who was the first one to say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And it was Peter, along with James and John, who had seen Jesus transfigured, and the other nine weren't invited. It was Peter who had been told by Jesus to go fishing and look into the mouth of the fish and find enough money to pay taxes for both Jesus and Peter in the temple tax. The others had to come up with that money on their own. So it seemed that Jesus had given Peter a role that was not shared by the others. But there is another perspective. I mean, Peter's the only one who had been sharply rebuked by Jesus. I mean, Jesus had openly said that at one point that Peter had been inspired to speak by the devil himself. And furthermore, it was not just Peter who was on the mountain of transfiguration. No, no, the two brothers, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, had been asked to go there as well. You know, perhaps Peter's leadership role was fading. Maybe others were rising and going to prominence. See, at any rate, given that Jesus was announcing the dawn of the kingdom of God, and given that they were going to raid Satan's kingdom, it it seems appropriate to ask, who is going to be taking leadership? I mean, who's going to be thought of as the greatest of the 12, the one that accomplishes the most in the kingdom? Now, lest we are too quick to condemn the disciples, I mean, let me ask, are they the only ones that act this way? I mean, look, I, I realize that there's, there's hardly one human endeavor in which leadership is not required. And to those who deny it, I would argue it's easy to see that from the Scripture. Jesus demands that there is leadership in the local church, leadership in the church. I mean, leadership in your place and work, leadership in politics of the nation. Leadership is required everywhere. That's why Hebrews 13, verse 7, commands that the church should remember their leaders. And then in verse 17 of that same chapter, we're told, obey your leaders, submit to them. So contrary to what some teach, what follows, that is, what follows in Matthew 18, well, it's not a repudiation of leadership. Far from it. Well, then let's keep reading. The disciples want to know who's the greatest because for them, greatness and leadership always go together. So now I'm reading Matthew 18, 2-4. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, this saying of Jesus, you know, is, is widely known today. If you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you're going to have to become like a child. Let's see if we can explore what Jesus meant by that. I noticed that he calls a child to him. It's interesting because I think Jesus was constantly surrounded by kids. When people came to hear him preach, you know, in Matthew 14, 21, it says that the children were among them. And in the next chapter, that is after the one we're studying now, that is in Matthew 19, we're told that the the disciples tried to send the children away, but Jesus rebuked the disciples. He wasn't going to allow the kids to be kept from him. You know, it seems that the children were constantly around Jesus, and so it would, would seem relatively easy for him at any point in time to simply point at one of them and say, you know, Johnny or Susie, you come right over here, sit right here beside me. See, I, I do find it interesting that there are all sorts of people who find children annoying. You know, sometimes when I've flown on an airplane, I've heard people say, I hope I'm not seated next to a child or even a baby. You know, I don't know, is it the crying? Is it the jumping around? I, I suppose that's it. But the crying, well, that's a sign of life. Another human being is created in the image of God and they've come into the world. And besides, I want to say, if you need to sleep on the plane, that's why the Lord created earplugs. Put them in. If you don't like kids, listen, you need a revival. But why do we need to become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven? You know, I certainly do think that we shouldn't idealize children. You know, some teaching on this passage will talk about, you know, the the innocence of children or their inner humility. So, can we be honest about kids? You know, sometimes little kids throw their peas on the floor and they just scream. Sometimes they just shout, no! Sometimes children tease other children mercilessly. No, no. Children, just like adults, are fallen. They don't all have humility. They boast to each other all the time. I'm stronger than you are. I'm prettier than you are. I'm smarter than you are. I can throw a ball farther than you can. I I can't imagine that Jesus was saying that kids were humble by nature because I know they're not. Kids are fallen by nature. They, like we adults, are born into sin and no sooner do they begin in life when already they believe that they're the center of the universe. (laughs) That's just like us. I wonder then what did Jesus mean? The past number of years, Back to the Bible Canada has been blessed to offer a unique Israel experience, a journey to the Holy Land under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, discovering firsthand locations across Israel so prominent in the Bible. On every occasion, those in attendance have agreed it was a spiritual experience of a lifetime. Now's the time to plan ahead. In April of 2021, Back to the Bible Canada is offering our next Israel experience and we want you to attend. Join an intimate group of brothers and sisters journeying across Israel under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld and experience events and activities that will include Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, very special musical guests and hosted by the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Plan to attend. Take advantage of having plenty of notice and register today. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Jesus' teaching about becoming like a child is really a wonderful reminder that the true pathway to greatness is humility. Jesus, at least this is how I see it, he wasn't saying that children have an inner quality of humility which is theirs by nature, and we only lose that when we become adults. 
I, he wasn't saying that, and I don't think we should say it either. It's, it's naive to think that. Rather, Jesus was saying that children are humble. Theirs is the lowest place. If they have good parents, they're going to be disciplined. They have no status. They're dependent on their parents. If there's a gathering of world leaders, they discuss, you know, the economies of the world and trade arrangements and disputes between nations. No one asks the kids to come in. If scientists gather to discuss physics or technology, kids aren't in that room either. And if I need my car fixed, I don't go to a five-year-old mechanic. He or she doesn't know what they're doing. They are the least in our culture. Kids are humble not because they feel humble, but because that's their role. That's what society rightfully gives them, and that's what Jesus is saying. You have to take the role of humility if you want to enter the kingdom. You get no status. You will need to confess your sins. You're going to need to confess your unworthiness of grace. You're going to come to God offering him nothing. You come not as a resource, but as a beggar. You offer God nothing, and neither does God seek you out for your wisdom. You can only offer him your foolishness, and that's the attitude you've got to embrace. Just like a child, you will have no status. Unless you humble yourself and become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're arguing about who's the greatest, your attitude displays a shocking lack of awareness as to who you are. You really think that God is impressed by what you bring to him. And by the way, let's say you're a new Christian. And you do know that you were marvelously saved through the love and the kindness and the mercy of God. But now I speak to Christians who have become mature, who have risen to position of leadership. Paul writes that if anyone desires to be an overseer, he desires a noble task. Yep, it's good to rise to leadership if that's what God wants for you. But if you ever lose that sense of being undeserving, if you ever see anything other than the gift of God and not your own doing, well, if that happens, you're in danger. Lose humility and you lose everything. You might remember what, what I've said that Matthew 18 is the fourth discourse in the book of Matthew. The first was the Sermon on the Mount. And, and you might remember that the sermon begins with four Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. What does that speak about? Neediness, humble circumstances, not vast resources or human greatness. Or think of how Jesus taught this constantly. The Canaanite woman acknowledged that she was no more than a Gentile dog, unworthy to sit at the master's table. But she was begging for no more than a few crumbs that might fall from his table. And if any of us ever forget that we, all of us, who have been saved by grace, are exactly like that Canaanite woman. If we forget, we fall from grace. You've got to take the status of a child and maintain that status for a lifetime. It's quite a lesson. But Jesus now adds something else, verses 5 to 8. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Well, let's start with a matter of receiving a child. You know, a child is a person of no status. We've said that. And we have to believe that Jesus commands the disciples gladly welcome people among them who have no status. And here's an example of that. 
The book of James talks about a practice that was in danger of developing in the early church. A rich man would enter into an assembly of believers, and then receive the best seat in the house and be treated like a person of honor. And a poor person would enter the gathering of Christians and he would be told to stand in the corner. People of status were honored. People of humility were humbled. James says this should never be. Or think about the words of Paul, 1 Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And then the very next verse, Paul adds, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Yeah, the reason you were called has nothing to do with your status. Now then, having said that, that they were to to welcome the person of little status with great joy, Jesus then goes on to speak of it the other way around. What if you cause someone of little status to fall away? What if you cause the person who has just a little bit of faith to stumble? What if you treat a person of little status with contempt so that they lose their certainty in God because of you? What then? I'll tell you a little story. It's actually a true story. It's of a woman I know whose husband left her for another woman. She was betrayed. She was wounded. She was left with a broken marriage. And back in her day, for she's older, her church had a policy. If anyone was divorced, they were excommunicated from that church. And so after her husband divorced her, she was removed from the church roster. And she was a woman of no status. To whom would she complain? She was not well connected. Hey, you want to know something amazing? That woman actually never left the people of God. Listen to what Jesus says. If you cause a person of no status in the church to stumble because of unbelief, you await a horrifying future. You know that millstone that Jesus refers to here? was a very heavy stone that was turned only by a donkey who had the strength to turn that stone. It was that heavy. Jesus is saying, you need to know that judgment awaits you if your behavior towards a person of little status causes them to lose faith. You're better off dead. And then he adds this thought. Offenses which cause people to fall from the faith are bound to come. So are temptations. So are false philosophies or idolatry or the appeal to sensuality. There are thousands of ways in which people who have not yet grasped true faith can easily be drawn away from Christ. I have a very sad memory of a man who appeared to be in the faith. He'd made some form of a profession to Christ and had become my friend. But as Jesus said in the parable of the sower, There remained in him a deep love of darkness, and it would eventually choke out his faith. And then along came a certain woman, and for her he left his wife, his children, his church, so that he could be with her. Woe to that woman who enticed him. And as it turns out, he was bound to sin in some fashion that would cause him to fall away. But but woe to the person through whom the sin came. You know, I have often thought about this in relationship to, you know, my role as a pastor. You know, in Psalm 73, the psalmist writes, when he saw the prosperity of the wicked, he said he almost lost his faith. And then in verse 15, he writes that if he had spoken publicly about his doubts, he said he would have betrayed the next generation. And those in positions of leadership need to bear that in mind. I mean, what if a person in leadership commits adultery? What happens to the faith of others? 
What if a person in leadership is struggling with doubts and then shares it openly and through the sharing causes others to lose faith? You know, you need to take these warnings to heart. Don't be the conduit that causes others to walk away. And with that, Jesus repeats a teaching he's given earlier, verses 8 and 9. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Well, the point of teaching, of course, is that drastic action is necessary to overcome our own temptation and the influence that we have on others. See, when Jesus originally taught this, he was speaking only of one's personal life. Don't be ensnared into temptation. It could jeopardize your soul. Cut off all sources of temptation, lest you go to hell. But now he's addressing the disciples who are busy trying to figure out who is the greatest. Instead, they should have been figuring out how they should never lose perspective. They should have been saying, how can we make sure that we never forget that we're nothings in the kingdom of God? How can we assure that we're only a part of God's salvage operation? How can we make sure that we never forget grace? And how can we also ensure that the least of these never see our own attitudes leading to their destruction? Oh Lord, give us the attitude of a child. Help us to understand our status in the kingdom and thereby help us to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. John, I'll be candid. The whole idea of pride is something that I've struggled with over my walk with Christ. And uh, I've come to the determination that I'm not sure I have very much to be proud about. Is that true? Yeah. Now, I'm personally. not personally here. I am. Expand the question to greater things. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is true. Paul does say, you know, uh, um, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything that we have comes as a gift from God. Our life is a gift of God. Whatever abilities that he gives us. I mean, you know, we've all developed as we get older skills that we put to use, and it comes sometimes through hard work, and we know that. However, uh, we've been given the health and all the resources to make that hard work possible. So I think humility is all about learning to give credit to God for everything that we have. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us tomorrow as we continue our series, The Mysteries of Compassion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Laugh Again, a ministry resource of Back to the Bible Canada, has had a profound impact on so many lives. In five brief minutes a day, Phil Calloway, through his special gifts of encouragement and humor, has opened doors to people hearing about the gospel. So many notes and emails of deep appreciation have been received. Well, Laugh Again is expanding its programming with Laugh Again TV. That's right, Laugh Again will be using one of the most viewed resources, YouTube, to present Laugh Again Take 5, five-minute videos produced to reach a huge audience with a unique message of hope and joy found in Christ. So check out the Laugh Again TV YouTube channel and subscribe so you never risk missing an episode. And remember, tell a friend. 
For more information or to support the ministries of Laugh Again, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.